0: We say that we're a church for all generations, we believe that, and we want to be a church for all generations. Uh, if you uh, have your Bible, uh, open to Luke chapter 18, we keep just kind of steamrolling through the book of Luke, and uh, we'll be here for, uh, kind of going through the ch- chapter 18 over the next few weeks, i about my iPad to turn, there we go, um, 18, 1 through 8, um, And he told them, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. Thankfully, in this particular story, Jesus tells the point before he gets into it. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. to Lord, we come to you this morning and we come to hear from you, to hear from your word. Lord, we desperately need to hear from you. We desperately Lord, need to be taught by you. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would enrich our souls this morning. Lord, for people in the room that are struggling and and desperately needing a word of comfort a word of encouragement lord i pray that you would give it lord we pray for those who are not with us Lord, we pray for them that you would also enrich them lord i pray lord that you would give them enduring faith in this difficult time that we live in and the difficult times to come we desperately need strengthening in the faith Lord, that is our prayer this morning. That is our prayer tomorrow and the years to come. Lord, may we endure. May we be resolved in our faith. I pray that you would provide it. Lord, again, we thank you, Lord, for the children that you've brought into this church. We pray for their parents. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them as they have this this huge responsibility, Lord, to raise children in the ways of the Lord in a world that does not praise your name, does not celebrate your word, a world that says, oh, find your true self. The only place to find discovery of ourselves is in your word, to deny ourselves actually, and to put our trust and faith in Christ. Lord, we pray, Lord, as we raise our children, that you would give us resolve in that as well. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've titled this uh, sermon, um, There Will Be No Prayer in Heaven. There Will Be No Prayer in Heaven. And that is true. We pray on earth because we are away from our true home. And when we do go home, when we go to the eternal joy When Christ returns and we are with God forever, we do not have to pray anymore. But, in the meantime, we do have to pray. And Jesus, in this passage here, encourages us to always pray and not to lose heart. And I say that because prayer is a difficult topic, it's a difficult subject. It's hard sometimes to understand the point of prayer. Does prayer actually work? You know, I thought, I thought of that. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about a, a woman who is an Indian. She's from India. She's moved to the United States. She's a citizen of the United States, but she grieves for her home. She grieves for her home because of the uh, COVID cases and the deaths that are pretty rampant in India right now. And also in Nepal. I, I talked to a, a friend in Nepal, a pastor in Nepal, and he, he told me that they're not being able to meet and worship. Uh, they can't go to the grocery store. Uh, food is an issue. Many people getting the virus, many people dying from the virus. Of course, in the Hindu world, for those who have been in Nepal, they don't bury bodies, they burn bodies. And so there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of places in India and Nepal that are constantly burning bodies because of the death from COVID. As so you ask the question, for our brothers and sisters in India and Nepal, as they grieve, and, we, and they tell us to pray for them, right? They tell us, hey, pray for us as they are praying. And we ask the question is, when life is troubling, when life is is difficult, when we pray, how do we know it works? How do we know that it actually has uh, a purpose, that it actually will accomplish what we want? Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about prayer quite often, and he has an essay called The World's Last Night, and he says, what sort of evidence would prove the effect of prayer? The things we pray for may happen, but how can you ever know it was not going to happen anyways? Prayer is a request, which means that it may or may not be granted, right? We think of that, we think prayer is a request. We're requesting God to do something. We want God to, to, um, to heal someone. We want God to provide a job for us. We want God to provide different things. And obviously it's a request, Though with any request, God can grant it or not grant it, right? Infinitely wise being listens to the requests of finite and foolish creatures, so he will at times grant and at times refuse them. Prayer success cannot be determined by determining the certain variables that lead to God granting your request. That would prove something much more like magic, a power which in uh, certain human beings to control or compel the cause of nature. Or that we can simply wear God down with our prayers requests and then God is forced to grant us our wishes as if prayer is a boxing match with God where we force God to say uncle or mercy. There are many people that believe that, right? If I just pray enough and say the right words, God has to grant me what I ask for. As if we're actually the infinite creatures and God is the finite creature. Think of. Think of one of the, I think one of the most the basic and probably the greatest example of prayer in the Bible is Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He provides a contrary case of many thoughts of how prayer works. You have the holiest of holies of petitioners, right? Jesus, who never sinned, who is faithful to God in every way, comes to God in the Garden of Gethsemane and does what? Prays. He petitions his father that the cup may pass from him. What even pleads how many times? Three times. He pleads with God, the father, that this cup would pass from him. But yet, what does God do? He refuses his own son. Did he not pray enough? Did he not say the right words? Should he have gotten on his knees in a different way? Should he have done something with his hands? Maybe if he had prayed four times, then maybe it would have gone the other way. Prayer is not some sort of exercise that determines who God's favorite Christian is or the court's favorite, favorite, the people who have influence with the throne. Just take the Garden of Gethsemane as an example. When you go, well, God didn't answer my prayer the way that I thought, I must be doing something wrong. There may be something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not one of God's favorites. Maybe God doesn't really like me. let will just take the Garden of Gethsemane to prove your thoughts are wrong. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the eternal Son, who was perfect in every way, who was the beloved Son of God, was refused in the Garden. Christ's suffering and death was actually a part of God's will for His Son. It accomplished God's redemptive plan for you and me. It also brought glory to God and was the means of Christ's exaltation. The cross was a path to God, Christ's reign. The prayer in the garden led Christ to being strengthened, the Bible says, that the angels of the Lord strengthened Christ in his prayer. He was strengthened and given resolve to what he was about to go to, to the cross. He was built up by his father, which strengthened his trust in his father's plan for salvation through his death. You and I need to pray because we need resolve. We need our faith strengthened as we travel this dangerous journey, which is the Christian life. There's a, uh, a, a hymn that we sang at the graduation on Friday that's called Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. And it ends, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, Our Hope for Years to Come. By thy art, be thou our guard while trouble lasts in our eternal home. We need help. We need God's aid. And that is the point of this passage. We need God's grace in a troubled age until He brings us home. You think about even the, the passage for 4:18,1 through8. What does it say in 1722? Jesus says to disciples, the days are coming when you will desire, you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. You will long for peace. You will long for my kingdom to fully come, but it will not come. You will long for it. Because why? Because very similar, and it even talks about right after this passage in in verse 25, just as it, I'm 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. When Noah was the, the, was the only man who was faithful to God in all the world, the rest of the world was corrupt. God tells Noah to build an ark because a flood's about to come to destroy the earth. Noah didn't know what an ark was, and God told him to build it. Think about that for a second. I'm not a very good builder. Some of you know me. I'm not very good with building stuff. But for some of you who are good at building stuff, what if, God, what if you had to build something that you didn't even know existed? How difficult that would be? How difficult it would be? If you, like, well, you know what a bookcase looks like, so you know how to build it. But what if God told you to build something that you didn't even know existed? Never, no one had ever seen one before. And God tells Noah to do this. And not only does God tell him he's going to do this, but he says... The reason why you need to do this is because I'm going to bring flood. I'm going to bring rain. It had never rained. And this is what God tells him to do. And he builds this thing out of what? Trust and faith in God. You you have to remember that Noah was the only righteous man in the world at that time. And so all the world hated God. And when Noah says, they ask Noah, why are you building this ark? And he says, because God told me to. And they mock him. You moron. You foolish man. Why are you building something that Noah that doesn't, even, doesn't even exist. And why are you saying there's going to be rain that comes? There's never been rain. There's never been a flood. But yet God, Noah was faithful to God. And he trusted God. And he did not lose heart. So the main idea of this, of this sermon, this teaching here, is pray for your Father's sufficient grace to the end. Pray for your Father's sufficient grace to the end, So Jesus tells this parable, and before he tells this parable, he introduces it with kind of the main meaning of why he tells it. He says, you ought to always pray and not lose heart. Christ deems it necessary for you and for the disciples to constantly be in prayer, to pray to pray continuously. Why does he say this? Why does he tell us that we must pray? Well, first off, you have to remind, remember that this is, we live in a fallen world. The world is full of corruption. The world is full of godlessness. A world that hates God. We live in a fallen world, and so sin, violence, pain fills the earth. The way that it filled the day of Noah, it still fills the world today. And due to that, due to the pain, due to the suffering... We long for God's kingdom to bring what? Peace, freedom, prosperity. Think about the first century Christians. The first century Christians were were persecuted continuously by the Roman Empire. You know that they prayed that God's kingdom would come. Why? Because they wanted peace. They wanted prosperity. They wanted freedom. They didn't want to be in chains. Longing for God's kingdom. We think of Revelation chapter 6 as... Beautiful passage in Revelation chapter 6 of the, the throne of the altar in the, in the heavenly places. And we see the crying out of, of the church. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and look and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, A quarter wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Verse 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete and who were to be killed as they they themselves had been. I mean, that presents the context of what Jesus is presenting here, is that we live in a fallen world, and the world is crushing his people. And they cry out, Lord, how much longer? We know you have all the power in the world. We know that with one snap of your fingers, you can bring peace in this world, and you can bring prosperity and freedom. Lord, we long for that day. We long for it. We need the Savior's aid. We need God's aid. We need your help. Jesus in John 17 continues to present the context of the world that God has, Christ has sent them into the world that hates Christ. That the world hates me and they will hate them as well, but I send them into the world to proclaim the gospel message. That same prayer request is the same one that, that Christ is kind of encouraging us to pray for here, is that we have to constantly be in prayer because the world hates us, and it hates the message of the gospel. It hates our Savior. And Jesus praised in John 17 to the God. He says, keep them from the evil ones. Strengthen them in faith as you did to me in the garden May they know your love for them. May they know your sufficient grace. May they be satisfied in their weakness, because they will be weak. The world will want to crush them and throw them into prison. It will want to refuse them from meeting. And when they do meet to worship, we will drag their pastors to prison, as was done recently in Canada. How do we be satisfied and content in weakness when that continues to happen? We want things to change. We don't want that to happen, but yet it continually happens in the world today. And so Jesus says continually pray and don't lose heart. Continually praying as an act of keeping our hands open to God's sufficient grace. So Jesus tells this parable. And this parable is the way that you need to read it and to to interpret it is a lesser to more. A lesser to more. So he presents the lesser, which is a judge and a widow. This judge is who who neither fears God nor respects people. He sounds like an American politician, right? I mean, really I mean, he doesn't really fear God and he doesn't really respect the people. But he's a man of power, a man of wealth. Which is so sad is because a judge in the Jewish society should be a man of the law of God. An author of the law is God. He's supposed to be a servant of God and a servant of the people. But he was neither. Even God in his law in Exodus 22, and this man would know this law quite well in Exodus 22 because he was a powerful, wealthy man who was a judge. He would have known that the law says don't mistreat widows. Don't mistreat the poor. And most likely, if this man was who he was, being rich and powerful that he was, who didn't respect God, didn't respect man, nor fear God, he probably took advantage of many, many poor people with money. He was a wealthy, powerful man in the city, and there was this widow. Widows, we we don't have to go. We don't need to go. We don't have to try to figure out the backstory of this widow. Jesus doesn't give us her backstory. All that we know is she's a widow in the first century Jewish society which is not something you want to be. She was vulnerable, she was needy. You think if you want an example in the Bible that helps I know you women, you went to the, the conference a few weeks ago, yeah, I went through Ruth. You know the extreme situation Naomi was in, didn't you, Don't you? A woman who has no husband and no sons. She's without food. She even t- calls herself exceedingly bitter that the hand of the Lord has gone against me, she says. She weeps. She even tells people to call her Mara because it means brought me, God has brought me to, brought me to emptiness. Basically, like when she left Israel to go to Moab, she was plentiful. She had a husband. She had sons. She had food. She goes back to Israel with nothing. She's got nothing. God has brought calamity upon me. That's how widows felt. In the Jewish society, we don't know if this woman is, is going to this judge because her husband's estate has not been given to her yet, and so she literally has no money, no care. So she brings her case before the judge, this cold hearted judge, right? He doesn't fear God, he doesn't respect people. You can pretty much do a fairly good job picturing what this man looked like and how he acted. She pleads for justice, pleads for justice, pleads for justice over and over and over again to this judge, this cold-hearted judge. And it says that while he refused her repeatedly, turned her away repeatedly, he began to think, even though I neither fear God or respect man, no law from God or heart from God's image bear will move me to care for this mistreated widow however her continuous pleading is annoying me she's annoying she keeps coming to me over and over again i keep pushing her away and pushing her away and pushing her away and she keeps coming back she keeps clawing back so that she will leave me alone i will give her her justice the love for god or the widow doesn't lead him to his judgment he simply doesn't want to be beaten down by her Wear, worn down by her pleading, as if, again, like a boxing metaphor, that, man, she just keeps punching and punching, and he just can't take it anymore. Even uh, some of the Hebrew words here that says that beating down could be, like, he like she's giving him black eyes. She can't, he can't take it anymore. And maybe because the law is against him, and the law is on her side, that maybe that he's got getting some bad PR in the city. His public opinion must have been moved Public opinion must be moved to her side. The fear of bad press leads him to relent to her pleading justice. So, my just want to kind of present a quick little interpretation here. There's been some bad interpretations of this passage in many churches. That God is like the judge. The widow is us. Keep praying to God like the widow and you will wear God down to do what you want him to do. Again, let me take you to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who pleaded with God on more than one occasion, and what did God do? Refused him. So how should we understand this parable? If this is not telling us how prayer works, as if we just keep pleading to the judge and we'll wear God down, we'll beat him down, and though God will have to grant us what we ask for, if that's not the meaning of the passage, well, then what is the meaning of the passage? Again, lesser to more. Lesser to more. The judge and the winner are lesser. Now, the more is the loving father and the chosen child. Verse 6 and 7. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Will not God give justice to his elect? The cold-hearted judge is now the loving father, God. How much more will your loving father, God? Prayer is rooted in the beauty beauty of God himself. How dare we make dwelling in the presence of God similar to spending time in the principal's office or a dreadful boss? How dare we? Relate Jesus, I mean God to a cold-hearted judge as if they're the same person. As if prayer is like wearing down some cold-hearted God. How dare we? When the Bible presents the beauty of who God truly is, he is not a cold-hearted judge that you must wear down in a ma- boxing match. Just think of David in the Psalms and how he viewed God. C.S. Lewis says, That the Jewish people in the Old Testament, especially like King David, knew far less reason than we for loving God. They did not know that he offered them eternal joy. Still, lest that he would die to win it for them, yet they express a longing for him, for his mere presence, which comes only to the best Christian and to the Christians in their best moments. They long to live all their days in the temple, so that it may constantly see the fair beauty of the Lord. That what saying is saying is that the Old Testament writers, the Old Testament poets like David, knew far less about God's salvation than we do, and yet they viewed God in a far higher light than we do. They didn't even know Christ Jesus, the Savior and Lord, like we do, and yet they understood the beauty of God and the loving nature of God. Of God. They crave to be in the presence of God. Let me give you an example Psalms chapter 63, verses 1 and 2. This is David. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. He didn't even know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and he writes that. He craved. He, God was an appetite, the appetite for God. Why? Because God is good. If you are his elect, his adopted child, we are not helpless widows pleading with a cold-hearted God for grace. In Christ, you are a chosen one of God. He is your loving father. You do not have to treat him as he's a cold-hearted judge, and you are a helpless widow. You don't. So stop reading this passage that way. The important truth with prayer. He knows what's on your heart. He knows what's on your heart before you even is on your heart. He knows you. He hears you. That's the problem with people when they interpret this passage. They think that God doesn't hear us, so we have to keep pleading with him and pleading and pleading and pleading, and maybe he'll hear us, as if God is like the gods of the Old Testament, the, the gods that the, uh, the, at Mount Carmel, right? Those, those that gods that they would worship in the statues, as if they needed to continue to plead to him. And as Elijah said, he must be in the bathroom because he doesn't hear you. That's not our God. He hears us. He doesn't have to go to the restroom, Right? He's very much aware. He listens and He hears us. He cares for His own. He cares. Not only does He know you, not only, does he, uh, not only does He hear and listen to your prayers, but He cares for you. He is full of wisdom. Here's the most important part. He will answer you. The infinite God will answer the prayers of a finite human. Think of that for a second. Just the, just the mind that he allows you entrance into his throne, that you can pray to him, and he cares for you, and he will answer you. He will answer you. In his wisdom, in his full wisdom, he will answer you. And he may answer to you in your prayers, No. And that is because, again, he cares about you and he loves you and he knows what's best for you. And in his full wisdom and in his omniscience and his understanding all things, he will do what is best for you and for his glory. And this is important. He may answer no, but this is something he will always give. He will always give to his elected, to his chosen children out of his love, his sufficient grace. Always. He will always provide it. He will always get it. When Jesus was in the garden, he did not, the cup did not pass from him, did it? He went to the cross. But what did he provide? His son. He provided him strength. He provided him his grace. This is the last point. The gift of enduring faith is the greatest offering from God. The gift of enduring faith is the greatest offering from God. Jesus kind of ends this, his, his teaching here in 18, 1 through 8, in verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth. In verse, in verse 7, he, he, will not, he will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, who cry out to their loving Father. Not a cold-hearted judge, but a loving Father, God. And he is quick to give his grace. He is quick to give his grace. And Jesus ends this passage with, I think, a very helpful question that helps to understand uh, the the importance of prayer. That prayer is about uh, getting what you want. Because some of the times that we pray for things is not actually what we need. But there's something that we always need, and that is enduring faith. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith faith on earth. So it's interesting that Jesus brings in the, the, the topic or the, the subject of faith in talking about prayer. Not faith that we'll get what we want. Or if I just plead enough and have faith enough, God will provide me all the things that I need and desire. That's not the way you should interpret this. Will you trust your loving Father to care for you in the midst of trying times? Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him that He will give you enduring faith in Him in trying times? Will you cry out to Him day and night knowing He hears you, He knows you, He loves you, He will answer you in His perfect wisdom, and He will provide His sufficient grace for you always? Think of uh, again an interesting passage in Paul, Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Again, another believer. Well, a, a, an example of a of a believer that we that we follow, in a lot of ways. His example, we see P- Paul here praying repeatedly for something to be removed from him, uh, chapter twelve verse seven. So to keep me uh, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, not to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My prayer is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, that I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Think about, again, Paul has this thorn in his flesh. It's a messenger of Satan who's harassing him, giving him pain. He prays to God three times. He pleads with the Lord, will it be removed from me? Please remove it from me. And what was the answer? No, no. Did Paul do something wrong? Did he not pray right? Did he should have prayed more often? Did he not say the right words? The answer that God gives him, again, like I said before, God knows Paul's heart, right? This is one of his children. He loves Paul. He cares for Paul. He listens to Paul's prayer. And what does he do? He answers Paul. He does, out of his infinite wisdom... He says no to Paul's pleading. But what does Paul doesn't leave? God doesn't leave Paul there just empty. He does what? He gives him his grace. He says, "My grace is sufficient for you. My my power is made perfect in weakness." His grace is sufficient in his weakness. In his weakness. The power of Christ is put on display in us. Because like Christ in the garden, Paul is strengthened in enduring faith through his pleading pra- prayers. Um, some of you may know friends that are in similar situations, but we, we, our family has a friend who has a child that, is, that was born with some conditions. And they've had to go back and forth to the hospital and there's tubes and things going all over the place. right? And I, and I know the mother... Would want to replace herself with the child. The child would not be in this situation, this state that they would be. The child would be healthy and growing. Instead, it's sick. And it has issues. It has conditions that make it. It's been most of its life in the hospital. In those situations, is is is, is her pleading? Is her pleading? Lord, would you take this away from him, that this, this child would no longer have this sickness, that he would become fully healed. And she should pray for that. But are we going to tell her he's going to plead more and more? He's going to have more faith, and God will provide everything that you want. What if the answer is no? What do you say then? Hmm? Where's your pastoral advice there? Where is it? Why would God let this happen? Maybe God really is just a cold-hearted judge, and we're just helpless widows. Maybe that's just the truth. That's not the truth, is it? We are His chosen children. He is our loving Father. He knows what we care about. He knows what's on our hearts. He hears everything that we pray, and through His wisdom that is completely infinite, He answers the way that He answers. But what does He do? He provides us the enduring faith that we desperately need. However, like Paul, our circumstances may never change. Our pain may never cease. But God's grace is sufficient for you in weakness. He will give you enduring faith. He will build you up in faith so that you will trust him more. You will give him your whole self. That's what we want for people in those situations, don't we? We want them to trust God in those situations. And I know it's hard, and I know it's... It's it, it, everything. It, everything about you wants to it, to go away, but some things don't go away. Some circumstances circumstances don't go away. But in those moments, you need to trust God, trust Him, and by that, you're built up and you're strengthened. And as God says to Paul, "In your weakness, I am strong in you." I love how Paul says this in 16, that you may say for the sake of Christ that I am content with weaknesses. Content is such a powerful word, and many in our world are discontent because we want our circumstances to change. But Paul says, I am weak, and I would like for my circumstances to change, but God says no, and Paul says that I then will be content with my weaknesses, With my insults, with my hardships, with my persecutions and my calamities. And when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because I have been given the sufficient grace of God. And because I have that, I am strong. I am good. I am content. In our weakness, I can be content. I can be satisfied because my loving Father who hears and answers my cries and His perfect wisdom will always provide His grace to me and I am strengthened by His power. He will always give you sufficient grace. Always. I can say like Paul and Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The world doesn't care much for weaknesses, does it? It could care less about your weaknesses. We don't typically publish our weaknesses on a resume, do we? When we're getting, uh, put, when we're getting uh, uh, interviewed for a job, we don't go, oh, here are my list of weaknesses. Weaknesses don't earn us favor with the world. However, as a chosen child of the loving Father, God lavishes His grace upon you in your weaknesses. Ask Him, and His sufficient grace will be given in abundance, and you can be content even in your weaknesses, content with a thorn in your side, content with sleeplessness, content with little money, content with lack of praise, because you are a chosen child of the loving Father God in Christ. If you do not have Christ, you cannot call God Father. And if you do not have God, if you don't have God as Father, He does not give you His sufficient grace. And you will not endure until the end. You will cease to have enduring faith. And so I'm going to just plead with you right here and now to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you will now not longer see God as a cold-hearted judge, but you will be see Him as a loving Father and you an elect and chosen child of God in Christ Jesus. Putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be made a child of the loving Father God. Some of you, when you think about prayer, Some of you have some prayers on your hearts that you pray quite often, don't you? Things you want God to do. There's some prayers that I constantly pray for, and usually it's centered on the church, you know, because being in a pastoral role, you spend a lot of time praying for the church and praying for the people of the church. And I think one of the things that resonates with me is that God is a loving father. And I am a chosen child of God. And he knows what's on my heart. He hears me. He answers me. And in his wisdom, he answers me. And sometimes he doesn't answer the way that I want. But yet I continue to pray. And one of the things that I've learned, even through this, going through this passage today, is that I would be content. And I think even for a church, not even thinking as personally or individually, but even as a church, we can sometimes resonate with weakness, can't we? There's churches that have more people. There's churches that have more resources, right? And in that, you're like, well, why do we not have that? You know, why don't we have those resources? We would do better with those people if They came here. We would minister to them better than they would. And I think for me, my prayer is not that God would answer my desires, but that God would give me contentment in the weakness. And that we would be continu- continually dependent on His sufficient grace. For when we are weak, we are strong. This will be our prayer until the eternal joy when we will depart but meet again together once more. Is that, Lord, I wish things were a bit different. Lord, I wish that circumstances were different. Lord, I wish things were different. However, I will trust in you. I will trust because you're my loving father and you know what's on my heart and you and your infinite wisdom will provide sufficient grace for me. And that in my weakness, in my pain, in my struggles, in my complaints. Lord, you will make, you are strong. And you will make this church strong. Even in our weaknesses. Even when things happen that we wish would not happen. God will continue to give his grace upon this church. And we could say, we're weak, but we're strong. Why? Because we are dependent on our loving Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word.